Almost a decade ago, the Harvard theologian Harvey Cox published an article titled The Market as God. And I was interested to learn recently that it expanded that into a book-length treatment because that of all, I've read a lot of articles over the years, but that one has stuck with me more than most uh, because I found the central insights so helpful in understanding some aspects of our contemporary society. As that title, The Market as God, implies, the basic idea is that free market economics has come to function in many ways, like the idea of God used to function in our world. This idea that um, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-perfect deity will bestow our blessings on it if we are just unquestioningly faithful in it. It's just instead of God, we need to be faithful to free market economics. God first, uh, Cox first became aware of this perspective when a friend suggested, you know, Harvey, you're spending way too much time reading that front national news section of the New York Times. If you really want to know what's going on in the world, he challenged Cox. He's like, skip right to the business section, and that'll let you know. And as Cox began paying more attention to the world as finance, he assumed that as someone who had spent decades learning the world of professional theology, he expected he'd find a a lot of unfamiliar territory in the world of business. And he said instead he found almost immediately an increasing sense of deja vu. He began to see many parallels between business and the history of religions. Cox says that behind all those descriptions of acquisitions and mergers, of monetary policy and the convolutions of the Dow and the NASDAQ, he said, I gradually made out pieces of a grand narrative about the inner meaning of human history, about why things go wrong and how to put them right. And theologians know a lot about such grand narratives. Theologians call these myths of origins and legends of the fall, you know, what went wrong, and doctrines of sin and redemption. And here they were again, only in thinly veiled disguises about how wealth is created and the seductive temptations of overregulation and ultimately salvation through the advent of free markets with a small dose of ascetic belt tightening along the way for those economies who fall into that particular sin called arrears. And he said, I realized then that my many years of studying religion and theology had prepared me to approach with a boldness and with a critical acumen this mysterious thing called the economy, because I had spent so many years approaching this mysterious thing called God. I found myself approaching it more knowingly than I might have otherwise. But here's the open secret. It turns out that orthodox economic models, just like with many orthodox understandings of God, when you pull back the curtain of how these ideas emerged in history, you find that they didn't actually emerge from on high, and you certainly don't find the great and powerful Oz. Instead, behind all the smoke and mirrors, you usually find a source of someone or someones who are far from perfect and who are all too human, with all too human human self-interest. Now I'll come back to that idea later. For now I invite you to notice a few of the other ways that economics has come to function like a religion for increasing numbers of people. Um, Cox writes that each day, if you think about it, Wall Street begins with a simple liturgy. How does it begin? Right? 
a presider stands at a podium and rings a bell. The next eight hours, it's a much longer service than we have, but about eight hours, exchanges occur that determine the well-being of the market for that day and bring either hope or despair to participants in the ritual. The experience of a bull market heaven or a bear market hell is often indistinguishable in effect from the revivalistic experiences of being saved or damned. If you spend some time watching Wall Street, you'll see people falling out and being caught up in rapture just like any Pentecostal revival. And the day ends, of course, exactly as it began with the ritual ringing of a bell. And just as religion has its sacraments, its ways through physicality of experiencing the sacred, so through marriage, so through communion, through extreme unction, uh, what are sometimes called um, outward signs of an inward grace, uh, the economy also has a sacrament, an outward sign of whether one is blessed or cursed. What is that sacrament? Any guesses? It's money, right. Uh, If you have more of it, allegedly you're blessed. If you have less of it, allegedly you're not as blessed or cursed. The economy also has its priests who interpret its mysterious ways. From the everyday economic priests of television stockbrokers to the inner circle of the President's Council of Economic Advisors to the real high priests of the economy like the chair of the Federal Reserve, right, whose every word is parsed in detail just like the oracles of old to find out what is our destiny, what does our future lay in store. Indeed, the Fed chair, Janet Yellen, descended from on high just on Friday to give signals that interest rates are likely rising, is what we have discerned. If you'll indulge me in a few more parallels, just as ancient religions had festivals to curry favor with the gods, so too we have things like the annual holiday shopping season in which we seek to revive our god, the economy, right? You know, as the saying goes, Jesus didn't actually come to be the fourth quarter saint, I mean, the saint of fourth quarter earnings, but that seems to be how it's turning out. Uh, Another high holy day of economic religion is Super Bowl Sunday, in which advertisers have convinced many of us that commercials on this one occasion are actually a positive good that you should actively seek out. The truth, of course, is that all commercials, whether super or mundane, are designed to create dissatisfaction and to convince us that we'll be happier if we just buy something. Such happiness, of course, is almost always elusively fleeting. The economy giveth, the economy taketh away. Blessed be the name of the economy. But if we take even a half step backward to witness the ways that advertisers are trying to manipulate us, we can quickly see the absurdity of their claims. For instance, could anything be less the real thing than Coca-Cola? If a manufactured concoction of water, sugar, carbonation, high fructose corn syrup, caffeine, it's literally in the ingredient list, artificial caffeine color, various other ingredients, if that is all the real thing, what would a fake thing even be? You begin to see the path we have trod that has convinced us about things like fake news and things like that. We're used to, we've gotten too accustomed to such Orwellian absurdities. Now, I'm not trying to unduly hate on Coke, but from a philosophical and a theological point of view, that this tagline of the real thing sounds a lot like an absurd caricature of historic debates from Plato to Kant about what is the dingonzik, what is the real thing, what is the actual essence that matters at the core of something, or Eucharistic debates about the real presence, where is the sacred. 
Now, there are many other parallels I could point to, such as the way that we take family pilgrimages to Disney World with the same dedication, the same level of sacrifice, the same level of rapture that used to be reserved for pilgrimages to religious sites. But to cut to the more important parallel, there's so many ways in which the market has come to function as a god in our society. And if you take nothing else away from this sermon, I hope that some of you will be increasingly aware and notice the ways that the market is described in quite theological terms. They may not literally say that it's omnipotent, but the market is often described as this all-powerful force. They may not use the word omniscient for the market, but the market is presented as all-knowing, that if we just trust the market, it will find the greatest efficiencies because it knows all. Uh, that it may not use the word omnipresent, but the market is said it would be better if the market were everywhere, if we had free trade everywhere, which makes President Trump actually quite a, um, is is actually working against that by by cutting back on free trade. That's a whole other story that we don't get into, how he is not an orthodox um, neoliberal, but and the ways in which uh, the market is omnibeneficent, the ways in which the market distributes wealth, and allegedly that all good will come from that for everyone. We're told, if you will but put your faith in the market, all manner of things will be well. It is only your lack of faith which tempts us to try and regulate the market, which holds the market back from fulfilling the fullness of its blessings upon us all. We just need to be unquestioningly faithful to the market. Indeed, if we go back to the late 18th century philosopher Adam Smith, whose book, The Wealth of Nations, was of course published in 1776, the exact same year as this this country and all of this are are deeply enmeshed. Uh, According to free market religion, perhaps we should rename him St. Adam of Glasgow. And St. Adam taught us that the best way to create a good society is for every person to act selfishly in their own self-interest. Counterintuitively, Smith tells us if we would all be individually selfish, more good would actually be created overall for everyone because looking back, it will seem to us as if our self-interest were led by a invisible hand, right? Does that sound a little theological and godlike to anyone else? Uh, Moreover, Smith assures his adherents, this is an exact quote that I've just made less sexist language, he writes that by pursuing one's own interest, one frequently promotes the interests of society. So if you just promote one's own self-interest, you'll actually find that you're promoting the interests of society more efficiently than one one really intends to promote it. So if you really just want to help society, you'll do bad and perversely mess things wrong. Just be selfish. It'll all work out. And here's the point where being a Unitarian Universalist can be helpful. Our UU forebears helped pave the way in saying that it is insufficient to say that orthodox religious claims, whether about religion or economics, uh, that they must be believed because of hierarchy or because of tradition, because you know, someone like the Fed chair tells us that, that this that way or because it's allegedly always been that way. We've learned to question those things and say instead that reason, what actually logically makes sense and experience, what we know to be true because we've seen it in our own firsthand experience, that those are equally legitimate criterions of authority, that reason and experience are equally or more legitimate than tradition and hierarchy. We can apply those same approaches to faith claims made about the market as God. The truth is we've tried faith in an unregulated free market, and we've seen repeated evidence of the devastation it can wreak at its extremes. 
So we have examples like the mortgage and housing bubble and crash of 2004 to 2009. We had the U.S. bubble in over-the-counter stocks from 95 to 2000. We had the Asian stock and real estate bubble of 92 to 97. We had the U.S. savings and loan crisis of the late 1980s, the stock market crash of 1929. Now, some of it gets into less familiar, but the Mississippi bubble of 1720, which is paralleled by the South Sea bubble of 1720. And then there's my favorite. Some of you may know this story. The Dutch tulip debacle of 1636. It's awesome. Google it later. Uh, This sort of speculation that came over tulip bubbles. Really interesting. Now, I don't have the time this morning, again, to go into the details and history of all these financial crises or even to just try and explain the credit default swaps and the collateralized debt obligation bubble of our most recent crisis. The fact that we What are those words, right? We can really say these things more simply. There's some uh, intentional obfuscation that goes on in a lot of these um, financial, um, that leads to a lot of these financial crises. How many of you have seen the 2015 film, The Big Short? Okay, great. I'm glad that many of you have seen it. I was about the same in the early service. If you have not seen The Big Short, I highly recommend it. It's the clearest explanation I've found for understanding what went wrong and how in our most recent financial crisis. I should also be clear that I'm not advocating for us to shift from one extreme to the other. I'm not saying we should dissolve private property and have state ownership of everything and some sort of like Stalin-like, you know, totalitarianism. Profit motive, I will freely confess, is a powerful and productive force. We just need to harness it in responsible ways. We need to balance somewhere between what might be called conscious capitalism, a a capitalism that's conscious of its own shadow side and the devastation it can wreak, and somewhere between that and what might be called a democratic socialism, not a totalitarian socialism, a people-empowered democratic socialism. But our world is currently enthralled to the extremes of a barely regulated capitalism that profits through the exploitation of people and the exploitation of profit. And neither the 99% nor the climate can take much more abuse. Here in the 21st century, too much irrational faith in this so-called invisible hand of the free market has created this unhealthy wealth gap, both in our world and in our country. To just give one example, the richest tenth of a percent, not the richest one percent, the richest tenth, one-tenth of one percent of American households control as much wealth as the bottom 90 percent combined. And the chasm widens every year. There are, of course, people who have worked incredibly hard to move from rags to riches in our society, but orthodox free market faith would have you believe that the invisible hand of the market has ensured that you know, the only reason anyone is rich is because they've worked hard. It's definitely not because the system is rigged or because they've lied, cheat, and stolen their way to get there. Or the only reason someone is poor is because they're lazy. It's not because maybe they made a mistake or because they were lied, cheat, or stolen from. So uh, especially in the case of inherited wealth, it is often not the case. You know, it's what's the jokes that, that someone you know, was born on third base and thinks they had a triple. That's the classic line about inherited wealth. By, so by inviting you to see the ways that economics has co-opted the language of religion, my point has been to try to pull back the curtain a little bit and reveal that far from being God, the engines of the economy are all too human, which means that we can change them, right? They weren't handed down from on high. Cox writes, the market system is not a part of nature. We as human beings constructed it, and we can renovate it, dismantle it, or transform it. 
uh, laying hands on it, it may not make you widely popular in some circles, but unlike the Ark of the Covenant, it will not punish you with instant death. Now, of course, it turns out that actually wasn't true either. If you're not sure what I'm talking about, come take my band questions of the Bible course, starting on Tuesday. (laughs) The point is that the market must be deprived of its sacred aura so that we can just start to think about it clearly. We don't need to take off our shoes or our hats when we enter the sanctuary, sanctuary of Wall Street. Our invitation is to make our religion and our economics line up with our deepest values and our true ultimate concerns, not false and idolatrous ones. We must demand more than a single bottom line of profit alone, which exploits labor and says, oh, you know, environmental costs, those are just externalities. Another one of those weird words that all it means is we're just not going to take those into account in our bottom line. We need more than a a bottom line of profit alone that doesn't care about the environment and calls it just a a side effect that we're not going to think about. In the language of traditional theology, we need the market to confess that it has done things it ought not to have done and it has left undone things that it ought to have done. Instead of profit alone, we need a triple bottom line that accounts for people, planet, and profit. Profit is very much still a major part of the equation, but it must, for the survival of our planet and species, be balanced against the needs of people, human rights, the dignity of human labor, and the long-term sustainability of life on this planet. Currently, instead of a triple bottom line, to again use triple, um, to again use traditional theological language, I would say we have a lot of abominations in the theology of economics, things like the claim that corporations are people. That is an abomination, I would say. It is a desolating sacrilege in the language of the Hebrew Bible. And there is no guarantee that, if we, uh, that we will successfully transition to a more green, a more humane economy, Uh, and, and there's no guarantee that even if we do, that it will be fairly distributed. The study of history, however, also tells us that predicting the future is a a difficult game that is rarely successful. If I lived in the time of Thomas Malthus, um, for example, you know, famously said that we'll, you know, population growth will, has gotten to the extent way before we got to 7 billion where we are today that people are just going to be starving. Well, he didn't know this thing was going to happen called the Industrial Revolution, right? We don't know what's coming in the future. To, to take a quote from one historian of economics writes, that in 1860 it was impossible to predict the sort of economic growth that would occur in the next century and a half. No one predicted electricity would become as ubiquitous as it is. Air travel, space travel were imagined by few. Automobiles, roads, television, radio, the discovery of microbes, of recombinant DNA technology, air conditioning, central heating, a host of other uh, inventions that we now consider essential were not even imagined and the next 150 years could easily contain, I don't want to say easily, could contain innovations of similar magnitude. What would happen if we learned to mimic photosynthesis, harness the energy of the sun in more efficient ways? The implication to food production and uh, energy are quite staggering, could lead to economic expansion unforeseen today. 
But again, that being said, there's no guarantee that will come, and it's, it is quite foolhardy to act as if climate change is going to be all right when it in all likelihood will not. I'll say more about that in an Earth Day sermon. And, and again, even if these changes do come, there's no guarantee that they won't just continue to contribute to the wealth gap unless we intervene and advocate for a more humane and green economy for people, planet, and profit. But the more conscious we are of these dynamics swirling around us, the more hope there is that we can do our part to build a world that seeks world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, not just for the few, but peace, liberty, and justice for all, including the planet. In talking about economics and politics, sometimes you see these th terms thrown around like neoconservative, neoliberal, and I'm not always sure that vast swaths, vast swaths of the population have any idea what those words mean. I'm particularly interested in like, the word neoliberal because we often talk as Unitarian Universalists about being a liberal religion, right? So what do those things have in common? Very briefly, because I'm aware of the time, uh, is that liberal comes from the Latin word liber, meaning freedom, right? So we are a liberal religion, we are a free religion, but we've often found there, there's a shadow side to that, right? That we've found that sometimes all our individuals are really good at our first principle sometimes, recognizing the inherent inherent worth and dignity of every individual, but that can sometimes atomize us, ghettoize us, leave us all spread out, and we can, it's hard to act together. So that when the sociologist of religion, Robert Bella, spoke to the UU General Assembly, he actually said, I would invite you to take your seventh principle and your first principle and flip them. He's like, y'all need to try putting that interdependent web of all existence first for a while and see how that is. And so I would compare that to neoliberalism, that neoliberalism is this doctrine that coming out of the 70s oil embargo, we got first wave neoliberalism with uh, Reagan in the U.S., with Thatcher in Britain, we got second wave neoliberalism with Clinton in the 90s, with Tony Blair in Britain, and it's this idea of deregulation, liberalized trade, or what you could call free trade, and then privatization. So those are the three principles of neoliberalism, of this new freedom, right? So it's a related idea. And, and I think as you use, we can actually see some of the similar shadow sides, right? Good things can come. Innovations can happen by individuals when they're freed, when they're deregulated, when we have this freedom to go anywhere, when things are privatized and you're left to be responsible for yourself. But it can also be a deep shadow side, a lack of community, a lack of common good. Uh, um, so that it's that same sort of, we actually have a lot in common with all of that. So both the blessings and the curses. So as you go from this place and into our um, hotly divided world, Try to, what would it look like to continue your journey in love, to care for one another and care for this one earth? That's the people-planet piece, right? To care for one another and to care for this one earth, to do justice and to make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.